Hey, folks, I'm just uh, shooting this from my backyard. There's a lot of action going on here. Some mandolin playing in the background. Puppy dogs running around. Kids over here digging. My wife putting in a vegetable garden. Getting ready for the apocalypse. And uh, I want to talk to you today. Pick up where we left off part one about having faith. Faith, man. I'm telling you, having faith has transformed my ministry. Without faith, I never would have got these solid gold Ray-Bans. They're heavy, man. These things are fucking heavy. This is solid gold. The person, I said I need some shades. And by faith, a person sent them to me. Solid gold. It goes from my uh, Gulf Stream. Or it's it's a really it's a helpful jet. I keep it over in Oxnard. My buddy's hangar. Fly that thing around. Anyways, uh, I want to talk to you about faith, belief, faith or belief in something versus. Trusting something is true. All right. I believe there's a huge difference. Now you know I'm jacking with you. But in the last message, we talked about the difference between um, believing in something and having faith in something. Faith in the, in the Hebrew is uh, emunah. A lot of people believe in Jesus, but they really don't have trust in him. They believe in him. They think it's the meal ticket to heaven. Uh, blah, 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 he died for my sins. Uh, but they don't follow Jesus. They don't trust his teachings. And his teachings are all about the narrow way. And it's not about a narrow way to heaven that Jesus is the only way. It's about a narrow way of life. It's about a life on a positive pathway. Uh, it's on a narrow road. The road of the golden rule, loving your neighbor as yourselves. Right? It's like this whole mask dilemma. Don't tell me to wear a mask. These are Christians. Like, it's not about you. It's about your neighbor. It's about others that are susceptible to the disease, you dumbass. Yeah, the Christians. Now, I grew up in a very positive household. My mom and dad are very positive people. <laughs> I know you're laughing right now going like... What happened to you? You were like one of the biggest pessimists I know. Well, this is true. Um, and my household, we had two different kinds of positivity. There was my mom. It was just, she was just looking for the silver lining in anything and everything. There was my dad, who on a daily basis would be like me, pissed off or negative about something, right? $5 overcharge on his MasterCard. He'd go ballistic. But I can say this about my dad. And I say this, and I could choke up saying it. When something bad happened, when something big was on the table, my dad was a pillar. He was a, he was an anchor. He was a rock. When something really came down hard on the family, he was the man that we all looked to, to lead us through. And he would do that with a positive attitude. Now, you can call that faith, but I really don't like the word faith. It's so misunderstood and misused and misabused today. And I'm a lot more like my dad than my mom. 
Anyways, they went through a lot in life, uh, a lot more than most people could ever imagine. And so did my sister, actually, to, to a degree. And I want to talk about that for a moment because we're kind of going through th something right now. And I hope to encourage you because I hope to be encouraged as well by the stories of my mom, my dad, people in my life who have been through it. Uh, and I mean people who have been through it. And we are going through it. Check this out, though, if you think about people going through it. If you were born in 1897... In just a few years, you'd be a toddler and you'd be bringing in the new century, the 20th century with all its promise, right? But by the time you became a teenager, you'd be drafted into the First World War. <laughs> 22 million people would die there. At the end of the world, world War, you'd come home, maybe think you're catching a break. But then guess what? This thing called the Spanish Flu Pandemic comes out of the gate and kills 50 million people in the next four years. If you survive the Spanish flu pandemic, you would then wake up looking for a job and be entering into the Great Depression in the United States. You'd be more than likely unemployed, standing in soup lines. And after years of that, when it just starts to look up maybe a little bit, You'd be young enough to still be drafted again. And this time go overseas and fight World War II against the Japanese or the Nazis. That war finally comes to an end. 75 million die. V-Day comes. Victory Day. You have a nice respite for a few years. You're not going to be drafted again unless you, uh, are, you know, military career. But your kids could be drafted because just five years after the end of World War II, the Korean War breaks out. And we fight that year, lose tens of thousands of GIs, and millions of people die. But uh, that thing came to an end. It was a draw. <laughs> it's still technically going on. Uh, and if your kids were lucky enough to miss that, well, then five years after the end, or the armistice agreement, the, the ceasefire in the Korean War, <laughs> Vietnam War starts. This war would go 20 years. Good chance your kid could be drafted to be fighting in Asia again. In your lifetime, you would experience Jim Crow laws. If you lived to be 85 from 1897, you would see the Jim Crow laws, which are a hangover from slavery in the Civil War. You would have seen unbelievable racism, segregation, regular lynchings of blacks, Ku Klux Klan rallies by the thousands publicly. You would have seen as an answer to that the spawn of the Civil Rights Movement. You'd also seen the spawn of the Women's Rights Movement. Against that, you'd remember the Selma marches and then the assassinations of MLK. And President Kennedy, in 1967, you would also would have seen the first time that blacks were allowed to vote in America. <laughs> Can you imagine that? All the while, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'd be living under this cloud of nuclear destruction, the Cold War. I remember as a kid having to do nuclear bomb drills where we would get under our desks and put our heads up our asses and told, don't look into the light. You'd also see the end of the Vietnam War after 20 years. And like I said, if you lived to 85, you'd see a new thing happen called the Iranian hostage crisis and gas lines and rationing 
and odd days and even days and you'd see a, a botched rescue attempt and then you'd see a Hollywood actor become president, Ronald Reagan. And if you were li really lucky, if you lived to be 85, you would also see the UCLA Bruins beat Bo Schembechler and the Michigan Wolverines in the 1983 Rose Bowl where a guy named Paul Bergman was the leading receiver with six receptions. <laughs> I talk about all that and people before me obviously have been through a lot and that includes my parents. My parents were uh, born and raised in what is now the uh, Dutch East, what was then the Dutch East Indies, what is now Indonesia. Uh, but it would have been a colony of the Netherlands for hundreds of years. That's where my parents were born as Dutch citizens. My dad from a German background, my mom from a, uh, an Indonesian, Chinese, and Dutch background. And uh, I never met my grandfathers. They both died during the war. Uh, barely got to know either of my grandmothers. I mean, one I met like twice, and the other one I got to know a little bit before she died. Uh, but I don't have any extended family really that, that I'm connected with. My parents were immigrants. They came to America and I was the first born here and have lived here my whole life. But they came here after a lot. Uh, when the Second World War broke out, Indonesia, or excuse me, the Dutch East Indies at this point was invaded by the Japanese. My mom and dad were thrown into Japanese concentration camps. They spent that duration of the Second World War as prisoners of war in Japanese war camps. Uh, and it was atrocious. Starvation, murder, rape. I know my mom was raped. I don't say that proudly. I just know that she was. I know she, she was a rape survivor. Uh, I know, I remember my mom telling me stories about the women that were raped and when they bore children, Japanese officers would take the newborn infant into the courtyard where they'd throw money into a hat and then throw the living baby up into the air and the officers would draw their samurai swords and skewer the live infant. And whoever got the most on their sword would win the pot. These were the things that they witnessed, rape and murder and mutilation. My mom was in a breadline once, a Dutch woman in front of her with starving children. Thank God my mom didn't have any kids. She was, this was an older woman with kids and she stole an extra bun of bread. My mom still remembers, she says, the gun rifle went right past her head to the back of that woman's skull and the report came and her head blew up like a watermelon. These are things my mom witnessed. My dad witnessed atrocities, but they survived, barely, uh, but they did. And, uh, but at the conclusion of the war, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, the bombs hit, the Japanese uh, surrender. But when they leave uh, the Dutch East Indies, they grant independence to the Indonesian people there and so my parents are out of the camp just barely coming out of the camp of the Japanese and the Indonesians revolt in a war against the Dutch and my mom and dad are thrown back into camps this my mom said almost broke her she almost didn't handle that so they go back into the camps are political hostages in this war and the Dutch were ravaged they couldn't fight a war on the other side of the world even though they tried you know they had been uh, ravaged by World War II occupied by the the Nazis and they um they eventually capitulated and under international pressure granted independence to Indonesia. A new nation was born and very much like um, maybe you think of apartheid and you think of, of uh, even though it wasn't that, 
that strict. I mean, it wasn't quite apartheid-like, but it was a, minor a minority rule that uh, now was handing over the reins to the majority rule, just like in South Africa. And, uh, and that, you know, that went fairly well. My parents continued to live there, uh, even though they lost everything in the World War, and then they lost a lot again in the, in the Dutch Revolution. Uh, I mean, the Indonesian Revolution against the Dutch. They now got some stability and, uh, and the Indonesians and the Dutch, for the most part, got along and they needed help and they worked cooperatively. And my mom and dad had a level of prosperity. My dad got in the import-export business. He became very well connected. They had a big estate and they hired a lot of people that worked with them and worked for them. And things were going well until another revolution in the 50s hit. And in that revolution, it was a very strong anti-Dutch sentiment. They wanted... This faction wanted the Dutch out, and they kicked them out. There was reprisals and murders and kidnappings, and they sent my sister out of the country, and then my mom and dad fled with a, with a, with a couple of suitcases, and they lost everything again. Bank accounts, cars, house, all the personal items. I got nothing in my family. I mean, I, I have no heirlooms. I have nothing from my parents from their time. I mean, in the time of the U.S. that they got here, I have some stuff, but... At that point, all, everything in their lives was taken away and evaporated. So they went back to uh, Holland and there was a high unemployment and a lot of people going back to Holland at that time. My dad uh, didn't dig it, he couldn't get a job, and he, not in Holland. And uh, my sister was very, very ill. She was, uh, she was sick, she had, she had bad lungs. Uh, but my dad, with the import-export company, got a job in South Africa. And you know, Dutch connections in South Africa, if you don't know it. But uh, he went there, and it looked grossy, like he was going to bounce back. And my mom and my sister came out. Uh, but <laughs> my mom was Dutch, Indonesian, and Asian. And she was very dark. And if she went into the sun, she would just brown up. And when she got there, the executives in the company were like, Paul, you didn't tell us you had a mixed-race marriage. He's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you're fired. can't. She can't work. You can't work here with her. It's not going to happen. So he lost his job, went back to uh, uh, Holland, crushed. Uh, but then, ironically, a friend of my dad, one of his best friends that he made in Indonesia during his years in the import-export business, was a friend that he made that worked in the U.S. Embassy there. His name was Otto McLaren. He was a black man, one of the most beautiful human beings ever. And Otto and his wife, Justine, were good friends with my mom and dad. And Otto lived in Washington, D.C., very prominent member of the of civil rights movement, uh, a journalist, graduate of Howard University, ser served in the Second World War, distinguished as a black soldier, and lived in D.C., and he helped my father come, and he sponsored my dad. My dad went through the immigration uh, stream of the World Church Councils, and they finally got their number, and they came to America, the three of them. And when they got here, they had nothing. Landed in L.A., Otto sponsored them. Uh, my sister immediately got very sick and uh, went into the hospital. She had, like I said, horrific lungs and asthma. Spent weeks in the hospital. My dad was flat broke. When they got out, uh, he, he found his first apartment. He was staying with another immigrant friend that they just met at the train station. This guy just took the three of them in. And uh, he got an apartment in Watts, downtown Watts, in a little uh, apartment building, a studio. The three of them moved in. My dad hit the bricks 
and uh, got his first job, second job, third job. And uh, then he got into the insurance business. And that's where my dad got a foothold. He made himself very successful. Uh, he, uh, he, he opened up his own agency at, at one point and he hired an all Japanese sales force. Why? Because my dad's survival technique, he was always great with languages, is he picked up in the prisoner camp the Japanese language quickly and he became fluent. It's a difficult language, but he became fluent in Japanese. And, uh, and I still remember stories like the immigrant community in San Diego where my parents lived for a long time and in, in San Fernando Valley, they would be at my mom and dad's house and I would listen to the stories about the camps always. I loved them. I love, I mean, they were atrocious, but they also, the, the resiliency of the people and the things that they remembered that were also funny, like my dad would purposely mistranslate the Japanese and just say all kinds of shit about them and they had no idea. And like the Dutch people were just trying to like not spit snot out of their nose and, and die laughing as he's humiliating them in these mistranslations. But they would tell these kind of stories just, and, and I, I was, and I wanted to listen to them all. I wanted to listen to the good, the bad, and the ugly about what they went through and the deprivation. And, and many of them were Indonesians who also suffered greatly at the hand of other Indonesians because they were friendly with Dutch or good friends. My mom and dad had many uh, Indonesian friends till their dying day uh, and had one of the best times ever going back to the country after being in exile for so long and were treated like just uh, like just, you know, amazing royalty as they came in by these people that loved my mom and dad. So that was interesting, but they got here. My dad uh, hires a Japanese sales force. He punk punches into little Tokyo, Los Angeles with these guys and they slay it. They, and they love my dad. My dad's this anomaly. He's this white dude, the, the tall German Dutch guy who speaks fluent Japanese. My dad would take me because not only were his agents, I mean, great guys, I knew them all. Uh, they were amazing dudes because most of them, all of them actually, were pretty skilled in the martial arts. Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, Aikido, Kendo, fourth, fifth, sixth degree black belts. And my dad would take me to the tournaments uh, and demonstrations and everything down in Little Tokyo. And these guys, I would see them and they loved me and they would give me all kinds of lessons and, and they would come to our parties at our house and do demonstrations and breaking boards and slicing melons and awesome, awesome dudes. Uh, and you'd think my dad would have hated the Japanese. Not at all. He absolutely was enamored with the Japanese culture. And uh, many, he would say many Japanese soldiers and officers saved his life. My mom would say the same thing. And many of them were absolute inhumane beasts. But he, and my mom said that was actually true on a lot of sides. They saw some things. Uh, anyways, they uh, so they make it here. And I'm born after all this, right? I'm born. I'm 40 years after they get here, I'm born. And when I can start remembering things, my dad's already graduated, waited up to a really nice house in the San Fernando Valley that we're renting. And then soon after that, we buy our, buys his first home in America. And it was a nice home. We had a swimming pool. And I uh, I loved it. And, 
and I grew up with great schools, Winnetka Elementary, Nobel Junior High, went to Granada Hills High School, left Granada Hills and went to UCLA on a full ride scholarship. Uh, met my wife, who I've been married to for 37 years at UCLA. Uh, play, get drafted first round, play four years of football, professional football by my first house, uh, you know. And then after that, I, I, I end up working in ministry, of all things. But uh, I've only had two jobs, 10 years in one ministry and 23 years here uh, in as pastor in Ojai. And, and, and that was my story. Uh, now, my parents had a very positive attitude, as I said. My dad was positive. My mom had this thing called faith because she watched TV preachers, Oral Roberts, um, Robert Schuler. Oh my God, they built my mom, well, my dad really, out <laughs> of a lot of money. But they were very, my mom latched onto that. And she had this very simple faith, didn't go to church, kind of a language barrier, but she, she got the TV preacher thing and she was always planting seeds of faith and that usually meant writing a check and all that bullshit. And that's why they got the golf wings and the gold. So they, they take it from the poorest people you can imagine. Uh, and, and, and my mom and dad weren't like, you know, rich, but they, they were, my dad did well and my mom was into this faith thing and they would give money. And, and then a lot of stuff, the faith things she had faith in didn't work out. And then she'd always have an excuse. Like she was like indomitable. She'd be like, yeah, well, you know, all things work together for good. Like, no, mom, that just you, this didn't work out for good. It worked out for bad. But God will still, she had this faith. You know, my dad was much more skeptical and God bless him for that. But he went, he went along with it. But these people, like Joel Osteen and what have you, it's really amazing. I, I watch these preachers and I want, so I want to talk about the difference between faith and a positive attitude, because I believe in a positive attitude. I do not believe in having faith. That's probably going to blow your mind because I'm a pastor, but I'm really not. Um, but I'm a thinker, so don't box me in because my name happens to be Pastor Paul. Prosperity preachers are the bane of our society and the furthest thing from Jesus that you could ever imagine. These guys with their multi-million dollar mansions and, and jets and jewelry and Rolexes that run around with their fancy cars, all preaching Jesus and having faith. And the difference is uh, uh, they, in a lot of ways, it's easy because they parent a generation of people that haven't been parented positively. Like Joel Osteen, right? 30,000 people fill a basketball stadium. What does he say? You can get a job. People are like, what? You. You can be an accomplished. Like, what? And you know, they write this down in their Bibles like it's news to them. Like, you can have a job. You just need to believe. And then cut me a check. But you will get a job. And it's a revelation to a lot of people that just didn't have parents that that parented with a positive attitude. Now, a positive attitude is different than one with faith. Because a lot of people think like, oh, being positive means, hey, son, you can do anything you want. You can be anything you want to be. Bullshit. No, that's not true. Maybe. 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 Maybe not. Maybe you're going to work hard and fail. Or you're going to find that you're not going to be able, you don't have the moxie 
to be an All-American at UCLA or to get first-round draft choice in the NFL. You tried hard, you worked hard, but you're just not skilled enough, and that can happen in a million different ways in a million different jobs. But, and, and that's where I don't like faith, because faith, this faith movement, puts faith in an outcome rather than a principle. And when you put faith in it, if you put your prayers out there expecting them to be answered, and then they're not, that's when we have some big problems. Cognitive dissonance, people's faith blows up. They feel like, whoa, God's not listening to me. Or even worse, they're told by others, you don't have enough faith. Oh, or you must be sinning. There's a reason your dreams aren't coming true. There's something going on and you're at fault. I mean, it's just horrific, the abuses I've seen here. There's a massive difference between believing in something or trusting in the principle. The trust really implies that you're going to apply this principle. And putting faith in that principle means that sooner or later, there's a very good chance you're gonna see some fruit from that. It's a great principle, work hard and you can be successful. I'd say, well, the chances are if you work hard, you will find success at something. That's a principle. Doesn't mean everything you put your heart into or your work into is gonna work out. It doesn't. Now, they like to quote Jesus in Matthew 21, where they say, Jesus says, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, he kills a friggin' fig tree for some weird reason. I mean, I know the reason that they'd say, but it's like, what are you killing fig trees for? But also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it'll be done. If you believe you will receive anything you ask for in prayer, Jesus says. And I would say, Jesus, bullshit. I'm calling you on that. Baloney. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? So what do we do with that? <coughs> well, Either Jesus never said that, very high likelihood he never did. Or he said something similar and it was taken out of context and now it's used out of context to uh, abuse people and rip them off so you can get the gold sunglasses like me. Listen, I don't have faith as much as I have a positive attitude in, and, I, and a belief and a trust in certain principles. I'm a realist. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm a pretty positive thinker. Thinking positive, though, is not just having faith in the outcome. Faith is, you know, acting on something that's unprovable. It's a belief in something that you can't prove. I'm going to do it. You don't know that. It's okay to have a positive attitude. I'm really going to give it everything I got. But don't fall for that faith bullcrap in, in outcomes. Believe in principles. Positive thinking is an attitude. It, it's, it is a belief that, hey, all things can work together for good, but not that all things are good. If, if, if I keep at this principle, something has a better opportunity to gain roots and work out. There's a reason for everything. God is in control. No, he's not. Bullshit. There's not a reason for everything. I've been to too many funerals where I can tell you there was no damn reason for that rape and murder. None. Now, can we surrender ourselves to God in that misery and that horror? Can we apply some principles and maybe come out of it a survivor? Yeah, I do believe that. 
that's very possible. Uh, but we can do that with, with, with a belief and a trust and a faith in a principle and not have the cognitive dissonance or feel like, oh my God, God's not answering my prayers. He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't care about me. These bad things are happening because I deserve it or I'm a sinner. That's not, that's not a good faith. And then they try to prop it up with more faith where you just need more faith. Well, that just leaves you a broken soul and spirit. I believe in a positive attitude, which unlike faith also means I believe in having a plan, not just waiting for the results or the answer to prayers. I like having plans, all right? I put my trust in a plan, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. Why? Because sometimes A doesn't work or B or C or D, and I want there to be an E. Uh, being positive means you have generally a, a, a proactive outlook instead of reactive, a realistic outlook. And, and, and when failure comes and you will fail, you can take the pieces that are left over and you can work together again, minus the disillusionment or the cognitive dissonance of a failed faith. The positive attitude leaves you feeling like God really is with me and he's for me and he loves me, even if things aren't working out. And when God, we understand, is not in control, we don't have to blame God or think that he's shutting us down or uh, closing his ears to us in our prayers or ignoring us. I don't have faith in Jesus as being divine or the son of God or having done miracles or rising from the death or flying away in his ascension like Superman to heaven. I wasn't there for any of those things. But I do have a trust in his teachings, in his path, in the way that he calls us to follow. These are generally very realistic and pragmatic and practical and positive and psychologically healthy. But most important, they can be tested and proven. I've tested these things. I've tested what it's like to forgive your enemy. And I've walked away through that going like, oh my God, they're so f this is pretty profound. Letting go of anger letting go of revenge, of going eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I've seen the psychological benefits. I've seen my life improve. I've enjoyed the freedom of letting things go and dematerializing. Like, whoa, I own things, but they don't owe me anymore. So try being positive. Try to follow, live out the teachings of Jesus. And you too might have a gold set of Ray-Bans. Uh, try to do it in a realistic, so sober, pragmatic, and healthy way. The teachings of Jesus. It's a better way to live, in my opinion. And honestly, that's all I got for you. That's all I've ever had, is my opinion for whatever it's worth. Jesus said these words. Now, I like these words. He says, I, therefore, I tell you in Matthew 6, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, reap, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Somehow nature is still rolling along, despite guarantees as a principle. And he says, aren't you much more valuable than they? I don't know, but he tends to think so. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I love that. There's no addition to our lives and worry. There's no plus. It's just a minus. So he says, why do you worry about clothes? Look at the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin. 
and yet it's not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. He takes an example from nature, and I love flowers. I do. Our backyard's just blowing up right now. You just, it takes your breath away. Kathy will make an arrangement and put it in one of the vases that Jared makes and put it out on the table. I'm just like, wow. They didn't get that beautiful by worrying about it all the time. They're here and they're gone tomorrow, like Jesus says. So he says, don't worry. Don't ask, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? He says, because everybody runs after these things. And God, the father, your father, the El Shabbat knows you need them. doesn't mean that he knows you're going to get them, but he knows you need them. And he's just trying to say like, man, everybody needs them. But what I'm trying to tell you is for your own mental health, stop worrying so much. And seek rather, he says, first, the kingdom of God living under the rule and reign of this good God and his righteousness, his right path. And these things will be given to you as well, eventually, one way or another. <coughs> it doesn't mean everything's going to work out. Jesus knows that because he concludes with this last verse. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will, wor tomorrow will worry about itself. He's like, dude, be enough problems tomorrow to worry about don't worry about oh what if but what if then and what about that and what about down the road when and he says each day he says has enough trouble of his own each day has enough trouble of its own so let's just work out the trouble in our lives today have a positive attitude through it and not worry about tomorrow we're gonna make it through this thing I promise you one way or another some of us won't. Doesn't mean that I could get sick and die. I don't mean that. But if I get sick and I do die, I will get sick and die doing positive things and uh, following a positive path, uh, a narrower path of generosity and kindness. And, and, and I will have tested and continue to test the teachings of Jesus and forgiveness and dematerializing and looking for what, what, out of the bad is left with which I can make good in the world, right? You do that too. Peace, grace, strength, uh, and the love of God be with you.